Hey, dealmakers, and welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. Let's do this. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication business, this is the show for you. This is the show for you. All right, today on the show, we have Mark Curry, who got started investing in 2005 and, and like so many people, built up a single family house portfolio, small multifamily, and then got into the 2008 crash. And boy, that is an interesting story and how he got through that and then how he took advantage of that. And I kind of see some parables now in the market we're in right now where I kind of feel like we're in a bit of a crash and I want to be ready to buy as much as I can when we have the ability to do that. So we talked about that here. He's also departed uh, since then, 20, 2010 afterwards, and kind of moved away from becoming an operator more into a private equity capital raiser role. And he's gotten into a variety of asset classes all within real estate, mobile home parks, self-storage, ATM machines, multifamily. And it's really interesting to see that kind of career path. So if you're interested in more of a capital raiser career path and maybe what are some of the considerations of being an operator versus a private equity slash capital raiser, this is going to be a really interesting show for you. I want to give a quick shout out to Michael Jefferson, who left us a review on Amazon for the Yellow Book. I uh, said the book is a great reference. I enjoy the easy to follow, well-organized format, and I'm already using it as a reference as I compile my apartment investing process and strategies. Thank you, Michael, for that. If you haven't checked it out yet, check it out on Amazon. It's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate. It's a yellow book. It's amazing. You're going to love it. Want to shout out success highlights, Caitlin Wen and Jeff Rodriguez. They're the first deal makers, and they were part of a significant real estate deal, 304 units in Alabama with a total of almost $20 million. And they were part of a mentorship program working with Matt and Philippe as they embarked on this venture. But that is an amazing, amazing accomplishment for, for those two. So congrats about that. Speaking of, because we're talking about different career tracks in the syndication world. So there's really two tracks, I'd like to say two main tracks in syndication. And one is the deal finder, and the other one is the capital raiser. Okay. And so today we're going to talk, talk a bit more about the capital raiser route, but I'd say there's about a 50-50 break in the people that we work with who are going one versus the other. So let me talk about each of those just so you get an idea of, of what those roles are, and maybe you can identify with one of those. So deal finder tend to be people who are you know, much more analytical, they're number oriented, they actually like spreadsheets like me, and they're good at analyzing deals. They're kind of introverted, but they don't have a problem talking to brokers after a while because the topic is numbers. And deal finders, because they're so analytical, actually can speak equal terms with brokers they're also detail-oriented, they're good at managing and operations, et cetera. Very important role inside of a syndication. On the other end is the capital raiser. The capital raiser are more extroverted. They're relationship people. They have the gift of gab. You know, the sight of a spreadsheet makes them break out in a cold sweat. Those people don't want to analyze deals, don't want to talk to brokers. Uh, what they do want to do is they love talking to other people and they love raising capital. And this is why these two come together in such a great way because both roles are very, very important in the, in the syndication. This is why almost every person who works with us is inevitably paired with their complement, right? So if you're a deal finder and you're like, my gosh, I need $2 million, then there's going to be your, your counterpart who's a capital raiser who goes, I, got, I can raise $2 million. I just don't have a deal. And so you put these two together, and this is really, in many cases, a partnership where one plus one is far greater than two. And so what we're going to talk about here on the show with Mark Curry 
is what that role looked like and how he vets the not only the asset class, and we talk about each of those asset classes, what he likes about them, but also how he lets vets partners. So if you're a deal finder, you're looking for capital raising and vice versa, what are you looking for in a, in a partner? So really awesome show. Let's get right into it with Mark Curry. Mark, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, it's great to see you, man. I mean, you you have uh, built an amazing business with your with you and your you know, I think your dad and your family, right? It's a it's a family business you guys have. Yeah, we started that way, Michael. My father is uh, officially retired. He still helps a lot with what we're doing, consulting, advising, guidance. He's been real estate investor since the 1970s, and so learned a lot from him. But he's playing a lot of golf these days, Michael. So he's he's actually let go a little bit and let you uh, run the company. Is that true? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's that, the way it's going. It's a good balance for both of us. So it's working well. But was it like that in the beginning or was it was it kind of tenuous a little bit? You know, it was definitely tough in the beginning, Michael. We got started formally. We formed our company in 2010. So through some tough times economically, right? And my father is a retired orthopedic surgeon by trade. But like I said, he's been a real estate investor since before I was born. But we started our company because we saw an opportunity to kind of expand on what we were doing as a family. Like prior to 2010, Michael, for about five years, myself, my brothers, my folks, uh, cousins, aunts, uncles, we were all chipping in and buying real estate. I was handling all the operations with my father and we built a nice little portfolio up and just wanted to keep going. So that's really how we got our start. And so at that time, it was, you know, you look back today, you're like, gosh, we should have bought everything we could get our hands on. But you, back then, you didn't know. It was tough. Well, it was hard to know what was going on. Well, let's let's talk about that because I, I feel like we're in a similar time potentially, right? Where people are like, oh, no, let's not buy anything. That's a mistake. You know, and then, of course, looking back, and you're like, God, I should have bought everything I put my hands on. But you guys got started really hot and heavy in 2005, which arguably was probably the height of the market. And so you went through 2008. How how was that for you? Yeah, I mean, we didn't sell anything. That was number one. We weren't forced to sell anything. I think we got a little lucky, Michael. Like some of the loans we took at the time had adjustable rate mortgages, but they had a, a nice situation where the rate actually went down. And so we got lucky. But we weren't forced to sell anything at the wrong time, which is how you lose money in real estate. We basically held everything Gosh, we didn't start exiting until probably 2013, 2014. And then, you know, at that point, we really, we sold some of that stuff too early. And so we should have probably held on it for even longer. But, you know, we learned a lot through that process. And we obviously went full time throughout that process versus part time by creating our company in 2010. So it is definitely a, an amazing time to go through, a stressful time. You know, one of the things that helped me kind of guide us as a family and as a company was tons of networking, Michael. This is, you know, the pre-Jobs Act, right? So you couldn't go online and find a bunch of sponsors and operators and deals and all of that. And so you had to go in, I mean, at least what I did, I was going, going in person every week or every other week to some type of investor meetup club or group, shaking hands, listening to speakers. I did that for two years straight. And that's really how we learned. How did that help specifically networking, get you through hard, tough times, find deals, or how did how did that help? All of the above. Yeah, it was, I, I wouldn't change a thing going back, looking at that period of time today for my career. It was imperative to meet the right people that had been through this before in air quotes. It seems like every recession is a little different, but some of the same the same cycles and trends you tend to follow tend to reoccur. But you you have a situation where if you're surrounded by people that have much more experience than you and 
have a much more, I would say, insider information to the industry, to lenders, to other sponsors and operators. Uh, maybe they're operating a portfolio of 20,000 apartments across 10 different states. They're going to know more than you. It's just that simple. And so just be quiet and listen and ask a lot of questions. And so that was how I got my start is just surrounding myself with folks that were, it was a wealth of knowledge for me. I, I my, Many notebooks full of notes, Michael, in person, right? So <laughs> that's how I, I, I got it going. Yep. Always learning, always learning. Now, there's I know a number of people who've lost their shirt in 2008 and nine, right? And so, you know, and, and it was obviously because there were over leveraged, underwater, foreclosures, blah, blah, blah. But there was also some where banks, you know, called their notes due through various technicalities because of what was going on there. And so even very good operators were caught up kind of in the crosshairs there, in the crossfire. But how did you guys survive that? What, what, I mean, and you said you have variable rate mortgages right now, which is, of course, kicking our butts today because, well, shoot, two years ago was a pretty good idea. We all got rate caps. That's the way to protect ourselves. And now it's still kicking our butt. And so, you know, now that same playbook isn't working so well, but it did in 2008. But what allowed you to kind of coast through that and hold your real estate versus having to sell or foreclosure or do stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, at the time, Michael, we were very nimble, very much hands-on approach that helped us then. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're doing it part-time and you have, again, I was single, I didn't have children, I didn't didn't have a lot of other responsibilities other than my W-2 job. And so every day after work, I would go to our properties, I'd meet with our subcontractors. I, I was the property manager for several of them. And I worked very late, very hard and busted my butt just to make sure that we were going to be okay. There was definitely a period of time, Michael, on a few of those assets in one or two markets. I'm just trying to remember exactly, but rents went down probably 20%. And that was the reality of it. And so what do you do? Do you hand back the keys? Say, oh, I quit. No, you've got to write a check. Some months we were negative cash flow. Okay, well, we're writing a check to pay all the bills this month, but we didn't sell. That was the key. And so it was tough. We worked our butts off, but we made it through it just by never quitting. And that's the, the ultimate mindset for me. It really brings out, brings out I think, the, the best in us and entrepreneurs going through time like that makes us resourceful. And also, it does expose the, the bad players. I mean, it's interesting what happens when people go through tough times and or when large amounts of money are involved. It, it, it just reveals the true character of people. And I have a lot of respect for, for you guys going through that and surviving that. Now, since then, though, you've really expanded your business quite. Talk about what some of the stuff you've done, the different asset classes you've gotten into. Sure. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit of of background on how we got to where we are today. But obviously, you understand the start. We were focused in the early years, Michael, predominantly on single family and small multifamily, heavier value add properties. We were buying a lot of stuff direct from bank, foreclosures, REOs, short sales, all cash, you know, boarded up properties that you wouldn't want to walk in. And so we liked that because we could effectuate change to value manually and not worry about what the market was doing. And so we did that very much our focus, gosh, all the way until 2016 or so. We were the sponsor and the operator on all of those deals and handled everything from choosing the paint color to managing the asset manager, the property manager, you you name it, the whole portfolio. But what what I started to do when I left corporate America, I had a 401k sitting idle, can't invest your own retirement money into your own deals. And so I learned that quickly and was a little frustrated about it, but those are the rules. And so I shifted those monies over to a self-directed IRA, Michael. 
And part of my networking process that I discussed, I, I met some savvy operators and sponsors in different asset classes outside of what we were specialists in, mobile home parks, self-storage, larger apartment communities, and started investing individually as an LP, myself, my, my family, to diversify. Right? I wanted to put my capital where I think it made sense and where we thought was resistant to the unknown of the market, the economy. And there was a lot of data back then and still today, but you could see some of these asset classes had fared pretty well through the recession. Mobile homes, for example, you know, there's a chart by Equity Lifestyle, which is Sam Zell's company, former Sam Zell's company, where they have this NOI growth chart goes back to the early 90s, Michael. And every year shows the net operating income growth on their mobile home park portfolio. Through recessions, it was still positive. And, you know, that just always stuck with me. I said, gosh, what is it? What's going on here? And so this is pretty amazing. Let me learn more. And so nonetheless, we've been investing in mobile homes, for example, for the last 11 years now. So that was part of our, our shifting there. Today, we're a private equity company. We've evolved. We stopped doing single family, small multifamily as a sponsor operator uh, again in about 2016. And we took some of those relationships that we had built, Michael, by investing with sponsors and we started syndicating some of their deals. They negotiate better terms for our group. Again, a lot of it was relationship focused. Hey, we've been investing with these folks in this asset class for a couple of years. If you're interested in diversification, we have an opportunity. And a lot of our investor group came along. And so that's really where we focus today is partnering with sponsors and operators in different asset classes and investing uh, really with diversification in mind. We can reduce risk. You can reduce people risk, which is, to me, probably the number one risk, maybe equal to debt on an asset, but definitely up there. And we also do that in a way where we, we create funds, unique funds, where we'll combine multiple operators, multiple asset classes, locations, strategies, income, growth, and really just get a nice blended return, to, again, with the goal of, of reducing risk while still earning a great return. So have you stopped operating yourself? Your own, yeah, entirely. Certainly, yes, we have. We yeah. kind of made that call, oh, maybe five, six years ago, Michael, yeah. we made that call and pivoted all of our attention to partnering with the right people and, and sourcing the right deals. Talk a little bit about some of these asset classes that you have invested in and, and just very short synopsis of why you like that and kind of more importantly, where it fits into the risk spectrum, right? You have super conservative stuff, maybe debt on the left, and then you have ground up development, you know, all the way to the right, whatever. In your mind, kind of go through each of the asset classes and kind of talk about where it falls in that spectrum. Sure. Yeah. As far as asset classes go, you know, our bread and butter for a number of years now has been mobile home parks, self-storage, apartments, ATMs is another big one. We've been investing in these exclusively, but we started investing in some other asset classes in the last two years because of the change in the market conditions. That includes uh, triple net industrial sale leasebacks and also a fixed rate debt fund. And so it's a mouthful, but basically coming back to your question, we, we like self-storage for a few reasons. I'll just go through them quickly, Michael, as to what are some of the pros and cons but we find them to be fairly recession resistant, which is a big part of our thesis. You see demand increasing for self-storage during economic downturns, recessions. People tend to change something in their life. It can be 
a move physically, a job, it could be downsizing, moving in with roommate, and that usually increases the demand for storage. We saw that through 2008. And so that was one of the reasons we started investing in that asset class. Mobile home parks, very similar, but that's another segment of real estate, affordable housing. Mobile homes are typically the most affordable housing option out there. This is a a long-term trend that we've been getting behind for a long time, where we think that the amount of supply is extremely constrained versus the amount of demand. And so, you know, econ 101, Michael, you've got tons of people who want it and not enough of it. Well, let's, let's look at that, right? And so that was a big part of our investment strategy in pivoting personally in 2011 or so when I first started investing in mobile homes. But you see that same trend today. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably even, it's, it's worse, let's be honest. The, the lack of affordable housing in America is not going in the right direction. It's going in the wrong direction. There is a significant deficiency in every single state in the US. And there's a bunch of data I can share, but you can look and see the numbers of home ownership, for example, continue to go down. The number of people who are renting keeps going up. And so we like mobile homes because of a few of the cyclical reasons where they tend to perform well during different economic cycles. But you also have a situation where they're very hard to build, if not almost impossible, new, a new mobile home park that is actually affordable in a desirable location. Most of those communities were built in the uh, 60s and 70s. And today's zoning codes are just high barrier to entry to build a new one that is affordable. And so you have a unique asset class there where you have limited or flat or even declining supply in some markets and a rising demand. We find that to be quite favorable. Uh, and then apartments, you know, interestingly enough, Michael, we've been investing in apartments, gosh, for over 20 years, but I'd say the last year and a half, maybe almost two years since the Fed started raising interest rates, our focus has been predominantly in tax exempt apartments where we don't have to pay property taxes. It's a niche within the apartment space that allows us to get a great return, cash flow day one, really favorable financing. And we're creating a win-win for the local community because we're keeping 50% of the units at the apartment building affordable by, by definition. So we're restricting the rents and the income that we allow people to have to be able to rent those units. And the other half of the units are kept at market rate. And so for doing that, uh, we get a 99-year property tax exemption. So again, a lot of little niche stuff, Michael, that we like to invest in. Uh, we find when going back to your question of risk and reward that we are, I would say, probably a little bit lower risk, but we've we're trying to find the sweet spot, Michael. It's always the way it's been for me. Like, How can we reduce risk as much as possible without reducing our expected return? And so for expected returns, you know, we're looking for in year one, to give to our investors three to seven percent cash flow, and we want that to be increasing through a business plan, a value add strategy. We want an average cash on cash, just while we'll hold, we're holding the asset of seven to twelve percent. And then when we add in the sale profits, we're looking for an average annual return on investment uh, or IRR, however you want to calculate it. That's usually fifteen percent plus net to our investors. And so we find that those returns are achievable, but it's hard to find lower risk deals that can achieve those. And you mentioned it earlier, but development deals, like we don't, we don't really do any development, Michael. The last, I'd say 
four or five years, every development deal I've looked at, not every, but most of them, I find that the risk is much higher and the return isn't much higher. Sometimes it's the same or even less than what we're getting. And so just we're not interested in that. Why take on that extra risk if you're not going to get the extra return? And so let me pause and see what questions that brings for you. Hey, are you tired of the stock market volatility or feeling like there's more you can do with your money? Do you dream of owning your real estate but not sure where to start? Now, here's the thing. You're not alone about this, and it's not your fault. There's so many options out there from wholesaling, flipping, to landlording, and turnkeys. Like, which one should you do? Which one's right to you if you want to get into real estate? And the truth is, none of the things I just mentioned will actually make you financial free and put you on a strong financial footing. But not to worry. I have a solution for you, a new idea perhaps, if you're open to new ideas. And that is the following. That we have found that the number one way to fast track your journey to financial freedom, build wealth, and retire is through apartment building investing. Now, you're probably thinking, that's great, Michael, but I don't have the experience or the money to get into apartments. And the good news is that you don't need previous experience or a bunch of money in a bank to get started. And I can say this with confidence because we've helped so many people of all walks of life do the first deal, and become financially free. In fact, we've helped students close over $1.5 billion in real estate. Now, if you're skeptical, that's okay. You're skeptical is fine, but you're open to this new idea, then let's have a conversation. Go to themichaelblank.com forward slash call and schedule a strategy session to explore working with us like so many others have before you as well. We're really excited to guide you on this journey and don't let fear or disbelief or what you think is possible hold you back. Remember, the only thing standing between financial freedom is action. And this is the one thing I want you to do right now is go to the michaelblank.com forward slash call and schedule that call with us. It may be the most exciting call that you'll have all year. Let's do this. So you you built your business based on, on partnerships and you mentioned networking as a key way to uh, make it through not only the recession, but actually build your business. And you built that on strong partnerships. What do you? What is your process for vetting an operator? So you have different asset classes, and you're like, man, I got to find one or two really strong operators. You're looking for conservative deals. You're also looking for probably a certain amount of consistent deal flow from these operators so that you can grow your, your fund as well. But what is your process for vetting new partners? Yeah, it's evolved over the years, as you can imagine. When you start out as a small LP, you're going off of a referral predominantly from a friend or a colleague or someone that has already invested with them and uh, has done well. And then it's, you know, I'm a financial analyst by trade, Michael. So I ask a lot of questions. I dig into the math. I, I like looking at Excel spreadsheets, but I also have owned and operated a portfolio of real estate across multiple states for many years. And so I understand the operation side as well. So those two kind of skills, I'd say, really help me look at how other people think and analyze and operate real estate. And so over the years, we've, we've evolved. I'll say this, there's a lot of steps in the process for us, Michael, to get comfortable with a new group. Mostly today, if you're not referred to us or if we don't have an investor saying, hey, these guys are awesome, I've been investing with them for many years, it's going to take a lot longer to get comfortable with just about anybody because they're new to us. And we have over the years, Michael, vetted and underwritten, gosh, probably over 130 operators in different asset classes. And so we have a pretty good depth of knowledge of who's who. We don't know everybody, but there's a lot of people on that list that we work with and some that we don't and others that we won't. And so that process starts with who are these people? How long have they been in business? What's their pedigree, you know, track record, 
experience is, is critical today. We're not typically working with groups that have less than five years of, of track record. We like to see exits and we like to understand the story behind those exits. Were they able to grow net operating income manually by doing a lot of things or were they the recipient of cap rate compression? Is that what got them a great return? And there's no wrong answer here. It's just trying to understand them a little bit better. Obviously, if they have some type of special sauce, what makes them unique? Let's learn about that, right? So we've got a couple operators that I think differentiate themselves from others. For example, one of them has a team of six full-time people. All they do all day long is cold call, self-storage, and mobile homeowners. And they've been doing that for 15 years. And so they have a Rolodex of mom and pop operators that they've established relationships with. So they get their deal flow, usually not with a real estate agent involved and usually off market, direct to seller. A lot of times that produces really attractive opportunities. And so we like that special sauce, right? That's just one example uh, of the people and their operations and, and how they source deals. And so that's that's one aspect of it. And then we can get into underwriting as well, but I think pedigree is important. We look at references, background checks, both professional references and organic, I call it, where I go and try and find people that the operator doesn't know I'm talking to and ask them about them and try and get more of a candid response. And we also look, of course, very deeply at when I said track record, you know, a lot of times we'll look at the portfolio that they're currently operating. How's it doing? Show us, you know, in detail what your initial projections were and how it's actually doing today. And are you above, below, at projections from a cash flow, from a net operating income growth standpoint? Do they have a, a cluster of properties in one market? That can be special sauce, right? They might maybe own thousands of units and operate thousands of units in one submarket. Well, they're going to know the rents. They're going to know the comps. They're going to know the demand. They're going to understand some of the nuances, like, do we have to get concessions? Do we want to be west of Main Street or not? You know, all of these little nuances make a huge difference. And so, we're, again, we're looking for something special versus just kind of a generic, hey, we're a, uh, an operator in this asset class. We've been in business for X number of years, and we buy Class B value-add workforce housing in the Sunbelt region. I mean, there's how many times I've heard that. It's like there's... It's a very competitive space. So what makes you special and different? So I'll see if that's a good amount on the people. And if you want to talk about underwriting, I'm happy to as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually curious about if you talk about a story where a partnership did not work out well. Right? We talk about a lot about our other successes and, and partnerships are really awesome when it's one plus one equals greater than two. Uh, and then sometimes they can be awful. Like I, I'd love to hear just a, a, you know, a, a little story about maybe a partnership without getting specific about you know that didn't work out. Sure, yeah, I've got one in mind. So this is an, a, a repeat operating partner we had personally invested with and raised capital with through our company in that order. And I remember we were looking at a new deal that they were giving us to potentially raise capital and invest with them. And they had a growth assumption of rent growth, Michael, that was, it just, it, it didn't jive with me. It stuck out too much. And this is in self-storage. So you can see pretty high rent growth assumptions because you can adjust rents within 30-day notice in self-storage, and you typically have, you know, an average 10 by 10 unit is renting for about 120 bucks a month, give or take. 
So to raise it 10%, the percent sounds high, but it's 12 bucks, right? And so not a lot of people are going to leave for $12. And But they, they showed us this growth assumption. I said, listen, I, I want to take a look at your whole portfolio. What has been your rent growth historically? List out, you know, annually per pro. And it took me a while. They would not send it to me, Michael. Finally, they did because I think the number was like over 12% that they were telling me they're going to be able to grow rents. And I was like, gosh, this, this, is, this seems high based on what we've seen. So they sent me the list. Here's the properties. Here much, here's how much rent growth we've been able to achieve. And there was, you know, two giant outliers that one of them was a development deal. They just built it. And so they were showing like, I don't know, 65% rent growth. And the other one was, I think it was like negative 3% where they actually had. So I removed the outliners and what was the average? The average was two to 3%. So why are you showing me 12, right? And so that was a bit of a deal breaker to me. I felt like they were hiding the truth as to how much rent growth they've actually been able to achieve. And so we stopped investing with them at that point. And that was a, a good decision. And so that's one relationship that Trust, transparency is just critical. And if you people start doubting you, they start doubting your, your transparency or whatever you're sharing with them and they think maybe that this isn't true, it sounds a little fishy, that's it. You know, that's kind of a, a nail in the coffin for us. Yeah, integrity is so it's so important. And sometimes you got you gotta pay attention to the little things, the little flags that you see, because if people kind of bend the rules a little bit in small things, they're going to bend the rules in a big way for much bigger things. So that's, we've had similar experiences as, as well. But I want to ask you about your strategy to uh, move away from operations to basically more of a private equity company. And you know, we see this in multifamily syndications. We see a mix of, of operators and, and more private equity groups. People who move to private equity eventually become operators because like, oh, I, want, I want control. I want more slice of the pie. I'm not, I'm not getting enough equity just by being an, an investor for another operator. What was your pro and con analysis for saying, hey, because you, you probably talked about this in your, with your family, you know, we can continue becoming operators and instead of doing little small houses, we can just do bigger, larger apartment buildings or get into self-storage ourselves. And you said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to become a private equity company. What were some of the considerations to that decision? And you're right, Mike. I've seen this different colleagues of mine go different, different routes. There is no one size fits all, right? You got to do what's best for your personality, your character, what you like to do, what your strengths are. I mean, all of those come into, into play, of course. So for us, I can speak specifically, you know, first of all, our experience was heavily in single family and small multifamily, called 12 units or less, Michael. And we were focused on distressed assets. And so the supply of those properties was diminishing for years. We knew that it was writing on the wall. And so we knew that at some point, these deeply discounted assets would no longer be deeply discounted. And so it was always in the back of my head, okay, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to pivot and when? Meanwhile, again, we had invested myself and my family in over 20 different other asset classes as LPs during that time period. And so we had data, we had trends that we could track and say, okay, well, look, these asset classes are actually doing really well as a passive limited partner. You know, why are we busting our butt <laughs> to go and get 15% and knocking down all these doors in an asset class where we think that the margins are going to continue to get squeezed? It's also historically been more prone to valuation declines during recessions. And we thought there was a recession coming soon. Again, this is you know, what, 2016, 17. And so we decided to, to 
put out a mobile home park deal to our investor network. Let's see what they think about this from a repeat operating partner that we've been personally investing with. And they loved it. They wanted to be diversified. They wanted to you know, be on the other side of recession resistance instead of being correlated. They wanted to be uncorrelated. And so that messaging was definitely absorbed quite well. And so that was a big part of it is it was a little bit of a test to see if, can we even do this? Because we wanted to, right? I personally, you know, our motto has always been diversification since day one. And we create funds to help do that. And a lot of times when we were the operator, we would create funds of our own properties or we'd both put together, you know, four, five, six, seven properties into one portfolio so that if something didn't work in one of the assets, exactly how we planned the other one could possibly make up for it and, and help reduce risk. And so that's uh, been a big part of it. But we decided at, at that point to shift gears, focus on diversification, focus on the relationships that we had built with operators and spread out our capital across different asset classes and people, of course. So we're in a kind of a, a, a difficult time right now. And there's some people who are just sitting on the sidelines right now. And you're in, you're in different asset classes, obviously. Where do you see the opportunity? Or are you one of those people who says, well, we're just putting on the brakes for everything? Or, or, or where, where do you see opportunity coming up? Yeah, it's a very top of mind topic for me, Michael. It's something I've been thinking about for years. I'll say this, you know, we, we're still investing. We're still actively investing. We're, we've slowed down because it's harder to find great deals. But they're out there. You just got to know who to look and how to make sure it's a great deal and where to look, excuse me. And so uh, I'll say this, in 2020, when the onset of the pandemic hit, we stopped investing entirely for seven months into anything new on purpose, right? There could have been a catastrophic event, Michael, where asset values would have dropped immediately, very significantly. We were all told to stay at home and stop working. That's the quickest way to a Great Depression, in my view, that I can think of. And so that was an all pencils down kind of situation. And obviously a lot has transpired since then. And so that's not been the case. But where we sit today, I also don't, I don't think is, a, is an all pencils down situation. And I'll say today, 2023, we're near the end of it. But for this entire year, we've still been able to find great deals that we think are worthwhile and should be invested into where we can feel pretty darn confident that we can meet or beat the projected returns that are being shown and sure as heck do better than a 5% yield in T-bill, which is great, very low risk, but there's just no growth. And so you're, you're barely keeping up with inflation, depending on what you calculate it to be. And so we've uh, continued to invest. We are very cautious. We're focusing on fixed rate debt, typically long-term debt. We're looking at lower loan to value leverage we're looking at business plans where we think there is a clear path to growing that operating income in a meaningful, realistic way, not extremely aggressive. We're not going to double rents in one year, you know, nothing crazy, Michael. It's just more based on current market trends, supply and demand, our operating partners' strengths, their ability to execute what makes this deal special versus another. Why are we so confident we can do well here? And a lot of these deals that we find, they, they have stories to them, Michael. There's some something about it that makes it special. And so to add some context, you know, we've been looking at 10 to 20 deals a month. We invest in five to seven a year. And so it's a very much a filtration process where we find something that we look at it. If it makes sense, okay, great. Let's 
let's analyze the heck out of this and, and move down the, uh, the diligence line and make sure that this is something that we actually want to send to our investors. And that process alone can take months. But you know, a big hindrance today that most everyone's feeling is, of course, interest rates. You've got, you know, what are we, over 7% now borrowing cost, Michael, on most deals. And then the going in cap rate on a lot of these deals is lower, if not much lower. And so there's no free cash flow unless you very, very lowly leverage the asset. And so we're trying to find deals, ideally, where there's a nice margin between the interest rate and the going in cap rate. Usually it's 75 to 200 basis points, which is very healthy and doable, but hard to find so that we can get positive cash flow year one, you know, call it three to 7%. That's what we want. And a business plan where we can grow it. Now, we've also seen property prices go down already, probably 20 to 30%. And so if you're sitting on the sidelines saying now's not a good time to invest, I get it. I totally get it. But when is a good time then, right? When it starts to go back up, you know, we don't know what's going to happen and when. So trying to time the market is not anyone's game that we're talking to, Michael. If you, you run a podcast, have you found anybody that can time the market? Please let me know. Doesn't exist. And so you're, you're going to lose money to inflation. You're going to lose your opportunity cost if you're just sitting around earning 5% with your money on a T-bill, for example. So we very much believe that unless there's a imminent danger or threat to valuations, that you should still be grinding and looking for great investment opportunities. Yeah, that's awesome. Mark, it's been fun jamming with you. How can people connect with you? Sure. Our company name, again, is SMK Capital Management. Our website is smkcap.com. We've got lots of information on there, Michael. People can join our investor group. You can email me directly if you have questions, you want to learn more about what we do. My email is info at smkcap.com. Mark, it's been awesome. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you about all the different asset classes and the private equity approach. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Michael. We appreciate you having me on. A few highlights for me in this, in this show, what uh, Mark was saying earlier is that networking is key. And this is so important is to really get out. And back in the day, obviously, you, you couldn't, there was no social media really and an online networking. Now there's plenty of that. You can actually do a lot of networking. We just had a virtual event called Dealmaker Virtual, and you can actually network virtually and then set up Zoom calls afterwards with, with every person. We had we had a couple in, in the UK do that, who were Americans who did a number of deals and never set ground in the US because they were working in, in London and because virtual networking. So networking is key for the reasons we mentioned earlier. If you're a deal finder, you're going to want to network with a capital raiser and vice versa as well. Also, the more people you, you meet with, the higher the, the, your, your comfort zone really expands. So networking is key. Make sure you incorporate that into your journey. I like what he said about deals have stories to tell. And this is when I, we, so at our, our live event, we have some, a Shark Tank type similar thing where we have students basically present deals to these sharks. And the feedback invariably always is, you got to tell the story. Deals have stories to tell. So yes, mention numbers. Numbers are important, but it's really a story. And it's interesting that Mark mentioned that. So when we do a live webinar on a capital raise, we really focus on the story. How do we find a deal? Why is a person selling it? What is the business opportunity, right? And just kind of telling that story. Investors want to know the story and they want to make sure it's congruent and makes sense. So make sure that when you're talking to investors about deals, that you tell the story, you focus on the story. I also like what he said about don't try to time the market. So true, especially in times like this. I get this all the time. Michael, should I wait this thing out? You know, 
And so the answer is no, you shouldn't because you can't time the market. Let me give you an example, right? 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. Michael, the market is too hot. I can't find any deals. Maybe I should wait till the market cools. Okay, well then COVID hit, right? Now within like 24 hours, the market froze, right? And everybody's, oh gosh, well, that's, I didn't want that. Well, maybe I should wait till it gets a little better, right? And so three, four months after COVID, we actually did a deal then because we were still underwriting deals during that time. And then the market reached a feverish pitch in March of 2022, where it got super hot. And then the Fed started raising rents, rates, right? And so all of a sudden people was run up to March of 2022. It's too hot, it's too hot. And all of a sudden Fed start rating hikes, the value starting to start dropping. People are like, oh no, oh no, the market's dropping. This is bad. I'm going to not buy anything. And this is the same thing that's happening right now. The reason we're still underwriting deals right now is because we're starting to see some opportunity. We know instinctually, we know there's going to be opportunity because there's a stress in the market due to the rise in interest rates. We want to be able to take advantage of that. And so this is why we're talking to brokers right now so that we can get the first crack at these deals that are coming because they're going to be off market. I mean, they're not going to be listed. They're going to be off market. They're going to be done quietly and possibly with creative financing, with loan modifications, that kind of stuff. So if we're not talking to the, the brokers, we're going to miss that. So you, if you're trying to wait and, and see on this market corrects, what's going to happen is you will have missed the window and the market will have gotten hot again. And so you, now you're going to wait again. So don't wait. My advice to you is just get, get your education now. Start networking now so that you can start talking with brokers so you know how to analyze deals so that you can recognize an opportunity when, when you see one. So definitely get started with that as soon as possible. Now is a great time because it's a little harder to, to get a deal. Having said that, a few days ago, we actually won a deal, which is, which is great. We haven't done a deal in, in nine months. Now, we still have to do due diligence on this deal, so it's not a foregone conclusion that we'll close on it. But because of our underwriting, we found a solid base hit. It's not a, it's not a home run. It's a solid value-add deal, fixed interest loan. Again, solid base hits after many, many deals we've looked at. But again, every single week, we talk about someone who's doing a deal. So people who are actively out there looking at deals are actually doing deals. Now, if you've listened to this forum, I really appreciate your time listening to this stuff. If you're interested in, in investing with us, We'd have loved to have a conversation with you. We are especially, of course, as multifamily, but we're also going to do something similar that Mark is doing and give our investors different kinds of asset classes to look at to invest with. We want to be that trusted source for you. Our investment company is called Nighthawk Equity. And so we're looking to put together a debt fund. Debt fund is a, a very a conservative way of investing in real estate. And we're, we're are now vetting various different private lenders that we can partner with who have been a, have an established track record. So if you want to get into real estate, multifamily, and, and a debt fund, talk to us. Go to nighthawkequity.com and just fill out the questionnaire. That'll schedule a call with us, and we'd love to have that conversation with you. All right, with that, check you next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading Michael's free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Head over to themichaelblock.com slash ebook to get the free training.